Now, what you do, I want you to get a pen or uh, a pencil. Uh, if you didn't bring one, I don't want you to steal it from your neighbor because we're going to be talking about that in a couple weeks in the story. You might want to borrow it from them and take out some paper, maybe your journal, and we're going to dive in. Now, I don't know when the last time, like the Batman movie, you saw a movie where from the very beginning, it was a big beginning, over-the-top, action-packed, lots happening, fast-paced. It's a kind of movie that if you stepped out uh, to get some popcorn and you came back in and you missed the beginning of it, there's a good chance you're going to have a hard time capturing the point of the story because so much happens in the very beginning. Well, the story of the Bible opens with a big bang. <laughs> if you would. But this big bang is not an accident. God is behind it. So much is happening at the very beginning, the opening of the story, that if you stepped out to get some popcorn, you might have a hard time capturing or missing what the point of the story is. And so what I want you to do is I want you to take your story or your Bible and uh, turn to the very first page, uh, the very first sentence of the story, or Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. The opening words of the story begins, In the beginning... God. In the beginning, God. The main character of the story is introduced to us in the very first four words. The main character is God. And what we discover and will continue to discover is that the whole story unfolds and finds its life out of this main character whose name is God. The first sentence continues. In the beginning, God, say it with me, created the heavens and the earth. Wow. We're just 10 words into the story, and we're already into this kind of action. Robert Ludlum, John Grisham, Tom Clancy, Daniel Steele, eat your heart out. <laughs> it would appear at first glance, as you read the first page of the story, or Genesis chapter 1, that the vision of God is the creation of the heavens and the earth. And when you think about how magnanimous and vast the earth is and the galaxies that we are a part of, it's easy to conclude that the point of all of this is the creation of God. That somehow or another the Godhead challenged each other to a galactical science fair project. And this is what we got. And that this is the point. The first two pages of the story are Genesis 1 verses 2 through 31 read like a page out of the Trinity construction work log, except it reads more like poetry or an artist painting on a large blank canvas than a guy with a tool belt. The sequence and the pattern of the opening of creation is simple, but it's almost too overwhelming to take in. I don't know if you thought about it or not, but on the six days of creation, they're divided in two. On days one through three, God creates or paints the places of his creation. And then in days four through six, he puts the objects in these places. For example, on day one, God separates the light from the darkness. Wouldn't you like to see the blueprints on how you do that? On day two, God creates the water and the sky, the places of the waters and the sky. On day three, he creates the land, the places of creation. And then if you look over on days four through six, you see a parallel. On day four, he puts the objects of the sun, moon, and stars 
in the places of the light and darkness. On day five, he puts the fish in the birds, in the water and the sky. And on day six, he puts the animals on the land he created in day three. With the end of each day of creation, God steps back and he looks at what he has done and he records in his journals this, these words, this is good, this is good, this is good. You know how Morgan Freeman does it when he plays God? Well, this is, some of you saw that movie too. While this is pretty impressive, guess what? While this is pretty impressive, guess what? The creation is not the core passion of God. The creation is not the point. The pride and joy of God's handiwork, the point of it all, comes at the bottom of page 2 on your story, or Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. What he creates in these two verses is the core of his passion, the apple of his eye, the primary subject of his big idea. In these two verses, God creates us, people. Go figure. I mean, you look around the universe in all of its beauty and all of its vastness, and you realize that God's point is us. It says in um, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, then God said, let us make human beings in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky over the livestock and all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. After God finished creating us, male and female, he steps back and he says these words. This is very good. Say it with me. This is very good. You need a boost of self-esteem? Read Genesis 1 every morning for the rest of your life. I don't know about you, but many mornings I wake up and I look in the mirror and I say to myself, this isn't good. <laughs> but when God looks at us, he says, looking at you is better than an ocean view. Looking at you is better than watching beautiful animals dart across the Serengeti. Looking at you is better than a sunrise. You need a boost of self-esteem today? Drink in some of this God-esteem. Now, men, before you let it go to your head, there's some more information to the story on how God created woman. You know, you were created first. And I was reading this morning in my wife's translation of the Bible on this, and it says that when God created Eve, that he, it says, well, it says this. He says he caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and when he was in a deep sleep, he took out the man's brains and created woman. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense now, doesn't it? Unfortunately, my wife has a very spurious translation. It actually says that he caused the man to fall into a deep sleep and took out his rib, that bone closest to the heart of a guy. I like that story. Page three of the story tells us that God plants or places these two people, Adam and Eve, in a garden called the Garden of Eden. 
And many scholars believe that the location or the likely location of the Garden of Eden is somewhere between the Tigris and Euphrates River. Now, this is a map that is in your story. I want you to take your story, open it up, and if you have a pen or or a pencil, if you're okay with this, I want you to take right here, just a little northwest of the Persian uh, Gulf, uh, right here in a place called Ur, in the little crescent of the of the Tigris and Euphrates River, I want you to uh, maybe draw a tree or something that symbolizes the Garden of Eden. And throughout our journey through the story, we're going to refer to these maps at the beginning and in the New Testament at the end and invite you to draw pictures that will help you get a geography of the story. That's a cool idea. This is modern-day Iraq. Go figure. The Garden of Eden is a beautiful place. It is a beautiful garden. Now, when I close my eyes and I think of a beautiful garden, what comes to your mind? When I think of it, I think of Pebble Beach. This is what I think of, a beautiful manicured golf course. Maybe that doesn't work for you. (laughs) On page 4 of the story, or Genesis chapter 3 and verse 8, we are told that God is walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now, this is very important, that God is walking in the garden in the cool of the day. What we see at the opening of the story is not that God is up here, but that God is down here with Adam and Eve. You get the notion that God's simple vision was to take a walk with Adam and Eve every day, the cool of the day, with Adam and Eve. God wanted to hang with Adam and Eve. As a matter of fact, what I want to say to you now is the big idea of the story. Listen very carefully, because some of you need to hear this more than anything. God's grand vision, his supreme passion, the point of the story is to be with us. That's the point of his story. That's what he wants. The community of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, wants to extend their life and their community with us. God wants to be with us. God wants to hang with us. God wants to walk with us. God wants to dwell with us. God wants to come down here and be with us. And you need to soak that in because some of you have walked all of your life with the view that God's some sort of angry cosmic being who just sits up in the heavens and watches down waiting for you to make a mistake so he can zap you. Or maybe you feel that God is distant or you feel that God doesn't care or he has forgotten you. As we uncover chapter 1 and on through the whole story of the Bible, what you're going to see is there's not a chance that he has forgotten you. There's not a chance that he has overlooked you. There's not a chance that he has lost his desire to be with you. God wants to be with you and me. This is the point of the vision. This is the point of his story. Did you hear me? But something went terribly wrong. You see, God doesn't force us to be in a relationship with him. This is a relationship built upon love. God doesn't hold a gun to Adam and Eve's head and says, I'm forcing you to love me. He doesn't hold, rather, a lightning bolt to their head saying, love me or else. He gives them a choice. So Adam and Eve have the freedom to choose God's vision, to choose a relationship with God. And to give them this opportunity, he plants in the garden two trees, the tree of life, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can read on page 3 or Genesis 2.11 about the tree of life. This tree of life bore fruit. And if you ate of the tree of life, the fruit, it would sustain your life forever. 
And then he creates the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And on page 3, or Genesis 2.16, this is a paraphrase, God says, Adam and Eve, you can eat of any tree you want in the entire garden for food, but not this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God says, if you eat of this tree, it will represent your clear choice not to embrace the same vision that I have to be in a relationship with you as your God. And if you eat of that tree, not only will you die, but the vision that I have of us being together will die with it. Most of you know the story. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve choose out of the freedom of their will to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the wrong tree, and the vision that God has. The opening of the story is ruined. The Bible teaches us here in this chapter, as well as in, on the, uh, the um, upcoming chapters, is that sin or evil is deposited into the DNA or the nature of Adam and Eve. It is there permanently. And this sin virus, this deadly virus, separates us from a holy God. And it's also the root of all kinds of evil, like sickness and hatred and death. Now, on the top of page six of the story, we learn that Adam and Eve are banned from the Garden of Eden. Maybe you didn't know that. But on page six of the story, or Genesis 3, 23 and 24, God kicks Adam and Eve out of the garden. Sounds like a mean thing to do, doesn't it? Kick them out of the garden. But this is what it says. Read carefully. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove them out, he placed them on the east side of the Garden of Eden, cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. When I, uh, as I was growing up as a teenager and on into young adulthood, reading the story of the Bible, I just in my mind just felt like God was just saying, you know what, if you don't want to play according to my rules, then you can't be in my garden. How many of you had that sense? Anybody else? Me and two other people. Okay, well maybe, you know, maybe, maybe it's just me. Maybe it's just me. But I had this sense that God's sort of being a little mean-spirited here. You know, if you don't want to play ball my way, I'll take my ball and go home. That's kind of the thought I had. But you know better now reading the story. At first glance, it seems as though God's being mean by kicking him out of the garden. But after further reflection, listen, after further reflection, this is actually an act of grace. Because God was keeping them from the garden so that they would not have access to the tree of life. Partaking of the tree of life would sustain their life forever, ever. And God said, you do not want your life to be sustained forever in the condition of sin. You don't want to live in a place where the earth is cursed. And not only do you have sin, but so do, does everyone else around you have sin. This kind of place is the only place you know, and I know you don't understand it now, but this is not the grand vision I had in mind. And I'm going to keep you from this garden. I'm going to guard it with cherubim and angels and flaming swords because I love you enough not to sustain your life forever in the condition of sin. And some of you are in a place where you don't understand this whole notion of death. But the reality is God is being gracious because you've never experienced this unbelievable vision that God has. And he is going to, out of his act of grace, prevent us from partaking of a tree that would sustain our existence in a sin-cursed world. 
Does that make sense? The grand vision of God to be with us, to do life with us without sin and death has been wrecked by the choice of one man. His name is Adam, and it broke the heart of God. But listen to this. Listen very carefully to this. I know the Bible seems very overwhelming to you, but I want to make it extremely simple. As we have opened up this first chapter of the story, we have discovered the true vision of God. I'm here to tell you that once that vision was lost, God is going to make a commitment. You're going to see it in a moment. God's going to make a commitment to do whatever is necessary to get us back. And the rest of the story of the Bible, unfolding page after page, chapter after chapter, tells us the story of how God gets us back. That's pretty cool, isn't it? How God gets us back. It won't be easy, and it's going to come at an extreme price. Now, if you have your story, you can skip over to chapter 6. We're now in Genesis 4 through 7. We see in chapter 4 of Genesis that Adam and Eve are now on the outside of the garden, and they have two children. Their names are Cain and Abel. Now, you know the story. Out of jealousy, Cain takes the life of his brother Abel. And we can spend weeks just learning lessons from this interchange. So many cool, interesting things that we can learn from the story of Cain and Abel. But what we do understand, the message is clear. The sin nature that was deposited in Adam and Eve when they, port- when they took of the fruit has now been transferred to their children, Cain and Abel. That's the point of Genesis chapter 4. That's the point of the story of Cain and Abel. It's a tragic story, but what it shows us is that the sin nature resident in Adam and Eve is transferred to Cain and Abel. And that means that every single human being in this room, and for some that could be questionable, Every single human being in this room has inherited in the conception of their mother's womb a sin nature, just like Cain and Abel. The sin nature will cause you to constantly look out for yourself rather than others around you, and it will result in all kinds of evil. As you read chapter 4 into chapter 5 of Genesis and into chapter 6, we see that as the human race expands, so does the evil in their hearts. When we come to chapter 6, this is the report of God on page 7 of the story, or Genesis 6-5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. If you have your eyes on those, that sentence, this next sentence is so disappointing to read. The Lord regretted that he made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. And if you just put the story down and decided to pick it up again tomorrow, you would walk away from it saying, God regretted that he made it, us, his heart is deeply troubled, he's going to give up on us. But if you continue to read, what you're going to discover is that God is not about to give up on us. He is going to pursue us. He is going to make a way to get us back. The question is, how is God going to undo this and get us back? What is going to be his plan? Well, the first plan is in chapter 1 of the story. His first plan is pretty obvious when you think about it. Let's start all over. Let's pick the best guy we've got, 
the guy that loves me the most, the guy that wants to be in a relationship with me, even though he has a sin nature, and let's start over with him and his family and see if we might get this right the second go-around. You know the story. The story is of Noah and the flood. Genesis chapter 6, verses 7 and 8, or on page 7 of the story, this is how it reads. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground. For I regret that I have made them, but Noah found favor with the eyes of the Lord. Now you know the story. It's likely one of the most common stories told to children in children's ministries all over the world in Christian churches God instructs Noah to make an ark in the middle of the desert that is a football field and a half long. Let me ask some of you kids, and particularly teenagers, you know, how embarrassing this would be if God asked your dad to build a big ark in the middle of the desert, huh? I mean, it's already embarrassing enough that he drops you off at the front door of school, right? I mean, now your dad is the crazy guy in town building a big old ark in the middle of the desert, kind of like Evan Almighty, you know? And that would be so terribly embarrassing. But he does it. And keep in mind that it had never rained up to this point. That makes it even more humorous. He builds the ark, a football field and a half long, and he boards all the members of his family and all the animals, and it begins to rain. And it rains, and it rains, and it rains. The story tells us that it rains for 40 straight days until the whole earth is covered in water and it wipes out every living thing that is on the ark. The story tells us that after 150 days of Noah being on the ark, the water begins to subside and the ark rests on a place called Mount Ararat. Now, if you take your story and turn it to the very, to the very beginning uh, where the maps are at, I want you to go ahead and uh, draw your best version of a boat or an ark, and it's up here uh, if you follow the Tigris River from the Persian Gulf up uh, past Nineveh, uh, north of Assyria, up here is a mountain, and you want to draw yourself a boat or an ark, okay? And uh, if you're really creative, you might want to put a little picture of Noah and his family and every one of the animals you can think of in your picture. Isn't church fun? See, we've brought Sunday school to big church. I love this. But it gets real serious. When Noah exits the boat, the very first thing that he does is he offers a sacrifice to God. And the story tells us that the aroma of the sacrifice reaches the nostrils of God and it pleases God as he looks on the heart of Noah. And he looks down at Noah and his family and he says, I love the people I have created and I'm never going to do that again. I'm never going to flood the earth again. I love Noah. I love Noah's wife. I love his children. I love the people I have created in my image. I'm never going to do that again. You know, it's a really um, uh, unusual, to, I mean, it's really ironic, I don't know what to say, uh, that, you know, the week that we're opening up the story, chapter one, covering the flood, that our state, you know, had such an incredible downpour of rain and wind. And the week that we're covering the story, I don't know if there's anything to be read into that except a point of God's grace. He said, I will, we knew that when the rains hit the coast, we knew that while it could be very difficult and while it would create a lot of hardship, it wouldn't keep raining for 40 days and 40 nights again. 
We knew that it would stop. And God said, on that day when Noah exited the boat and offered him a sacrifice, he says, I am making a commitment. I am making a promise. I am making a covenant that I'm going to get you guys back. But I'm never going to do it again by wiping out the human race again for two reasons. One, because God loves us. And he said, as a sign of this, I'm going to create a rainbow. And every time we see a rainbow, the first rainbow ever to be seen was on that day. Every time we see a rainbow, we know that the rain will stop and God promised to get us back, but never by flooding the earth again like he did. The second reason why he decided not to do it ever again is because it doesn't work. You know why? Do you know that the plan of Noah didn't work? You know why it didn't work? Well, we learn in chapter 9 of the book of Genesis that Noah gets off of the boat And after he offers the sacrifice, we don't know if it's two minutes or two hours or two years, but sometime soon after he gets off the boat, Noah, it says, gets drunk, falls sound asleep in his tent, naked and uncovered. One of Noah's sons, it says, Ham, enters into the tent, knowing his dad is in this condition, and it says he defiles his dad by looking on his nakedness. Now, this may not seem like a big deal to you, And uh, maybe it is, maybe it isn't to you. But one thing that this signals is that when Noah and all the animals got off the boat, the sin nature that they brought on the boat got off the boat with them, and nothing has changed. The problem has not been solved. The sin nature is alive and kicking in Noah and his wife and in his children. So this is how the story opens. I told you it was... A big beginning. I told you it's fast-paced. I told you if you stepped out and got some popcorn, you would miss it. Let's review. We've learned today that the vision of God is to be with us. That's the point of the story. But we learned that the first two people didn't choose the vision of God, and that sin entered not only into their nature, but it's been transferred to our nature so that we are separated from God. We also learned that the first plan to get us back didn't work because the sin nature was not dealt with. Sin has not been eliminated. Sin has not been covered. But the rest of the story of the Bible is going to be page after page, the unfolding of God's plan and his deep love for us to get us back. And on each page, you're going to find a clue. And I want to give you one clue as we close. There's a clue. It's a very subtle clue. You might have missed it. The bottom of page five of the story Remember when Adam and Eve ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? What is the first thing that they recognized? That they were, they recognized that they were naked. Nakedness is a, is, is a, uh, is a, is a, a state of vulnerability. It is a recognition that there is evil in the world and that I need to cover myself up. And so you know what they did? It says that they got some fig leaves and they covered themselves up with the fig leaves because they felt vulnerable. They needed to be clothed. They needed to be covered. They did it with a plant. Do you recall what God does? Genesis chapter 3, verse 21. Write it down because I'm sure most of you might have missed this one. It's very subtle. Do you recall what God does when he sees them naked? God makes a garment of skin for Adam and Eve. Listen very carefully. God replaces the fig leaves the clothes made from plants with clothes made from an animal. He places the figs with the skin of an animal to cover their nakedness. Here's the clue. Listen carefully. 
the solution to restore God's vision and his supreme passion will require that our sins be covered and we learn at the opening of the story ever so subtle of a clue that it's going to require the shedding of blood. The shedding of someone else's blood is going to be necessary for our sins to be forgiven, for our sins to be covered. Does anybody see where this is going? Listen, folks, as we opened up this first chapter and you were introduced to the fast pace of the story, what I don't want you to miss is that you are the point of God's story. And he is doing everything he can to provide a way to get you back. And I just want you to soak that in. But you got a problem. I guess I do too. And that is our sins need to be covered. Our sins need to be forgiven.